Hello and welcome to Wrestling at Random. I'm Jeremy Deemer. And I am Adam Summers. This is the podcast where every week we review a classic pro wrestling event from a streaming service. That classic pro wrestling event could be a pay-per-view. It could be a television special. It could be a home video uh, featuring original matches. Or it could be, uh, in the case of our show this week, a major show from a dying territory. Yeah, AWA Super Clash 2, May 2nd, 1987. The AWA in 1987 was a struggling promotion, like you mentioned, Adam. There there was a mass exodus of talent in the early to mid-80s from AWA to the WWF. As cable television continued to grow... The WWF would get their television shows airing in the key AWA cities and markets. The production of the WWF television was significantly better than that of the AWA, resulting in many fans switching over to the WWF since so many of their stars, like Hulk Hogan, were big previously in the AWA. Vern Gagne, the owner and promoter of the AWA, would keep the company alive for a few more years thanks to a deal with a struggling cable network called ESPN. ESPN saw that wrestling was drawing big ratings on TBS and USA. ESPN signed a deal to show old world-class championship wrestling shows from Dallas, and ESPN was deciding between the AWA or Mid-South Wrestling for another show. Mid-South was some of the best wrestling in the country at this time, but ESPN chose the AWA because ESPN executives knew who Sergeant Slaughter was and didn't know anyone on the Mid-South roster. The AWA had dwindling crowds, was no longer profitable. The company survived because of that ESPN deal and because Vern Gagne was pumping in his own money. Vern would eventually run out of money, and the ratings drop led to ESPN canceling the show. The AWA would close its doors for good in 1991. So with that upbeat intro, let's get right into this <laughs> terrible show. I, spoiler alert, this show is bad. <laughs> it, yeah, we uh, we usually save these, well, I guess this would be the, the uh, exact opposite of superlatives for the show that we watched until the end, but this is truly an awful professional wrestling show. This podcast won't be though, because there's a lot to make fun of <laughs> the, uh, yeah, we'll get into it as we go along the over my overriding thoughts on this product. It is notable. As you said, this is in the cow palace. This is what four years after the, uh, the super Sunday show that we reviewed the on this super podcast Sunday show. If, so the Super Sunday show we reviewed for this podcast from 1983. Three, yeah. Um, that show was super fun. It was really good. And if you haven't listened to that in our archives, go back, listen to that one. If you want to well, watch that the, show, watch that show. That was fun. The deal with that show was the the stuff that was bad was fun. And the stuff that was good was, in some cases, really surprising and, and fun and good. This was... I use the word moribund to describe ECW uh, in, in 2000 when we reviewed November to Remember 2000 on this podcast. 
this uh, this show makes ECW in 2000 seem like whatever your favorite wrestling company of all time is. The Again, the notable thing to me is, so this is coming for, from the Cow Palace in San Francisco. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, this was AWA struggling and they were stuck in between like being a territory, but then also trying to be national. You know, they're obviously with Vern Gagne, they were they were based out of, Minnesota, but then they've been running their shows, running their TV out of the Showboat Casino in Las Vegas, and then running this major show here in San Francisco. So they were like trying to go national, kind of, but man, the the talent level or lack thereof, to be more precise, on this show, it is it is dire. Like by by far of any show we've reviewed on this podcast to date the most thin weakest talent pool we have ever seen on a show we've reviewed here. No, you can see there's glimpses of the young talent. There's the up and comers who would be something. Yes. But everybody else is a, just a dumpster fire. It, it's well, what it is. It's basically what you have left. What is in the AWA here in 1987 is the older guys that Vince didn't want. And the younger guys that Vince didn't know about yet. That's it. And so with I could think of maybe three guys and they all got snapped up relatively quickly uh, by the WWF after this. But there's three guys on this show that are, are exciting. Well, then a fourth we'll get into who's who've been around forever, but I love watching them wrestle. But yeah, this is this is dire stuff. But we are it is saved or at least saved is way too strong of a word. It is elevated in terms of entertainment value by the presence of one man. And if you listen to that AWA Super Sunday 1983 podcast, you'll know where we're going. The man on play-by-play, sole play-by-play for a lot of these matches is none other than Rod Trongard. Oh, thank God for Rod Trongard in here. And if you're, if by the end of this, you're like, man, they were really talking about the announcers a lot. That's because that's all that there is to talk about on this show. (laughs) In several matches, literally... (laughs) There, that's almost all there is to talk about. And if you if you're not aware of Rod Trongard, we talked about him on that previous podcast. But he, uh, a longtime Minnesota-based sports broadcaster on both radio and television, uh, in the in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, he worked for more than 50 years, and he was that classic guy that was the local sportscaster who got called upon to do wrestling, and then ended up being you know as associated with that as anything else in his career. There's no intros or anything. We go straight to the opening match. We've got a generic ring announcer here. I don't know his name, but I already yeah, they never tell us. immediately miss Gene Okerlund from the AWA Super Sunday show we reviewed. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, Mean Gene, long gone at this point. He's in the WWF in 1987. The other noteworthy thing is this show opens, Jeremy, and they show the ring announcer. The Cow Palace is an ocean of empty seats with Ooh. like a, an island in the middle of the ocean with some people. It, it is empty. Yes. And it's a big building, but man, it is empty. It's very it's either empty or a lot of people dressed as chairs. We <laughs> we are in the Cal Palace, San Francisco, California. This show, like you mentioned, there's nobody there. 2800 fans. That that's what they drew. In um, an arena that if you uh, will mention later when uh, the crippler Ray Stevens is uh, joins Ray Stevens joins Rod Trangard for a match and talks about having the all-time attendance record uh, against Pepper Gomez in this building, uh, 18,500. 
So this one came up a bit short. 2,800 <laughs> did. did not beat the record. Uh, no. So. And it is also, I, I don't know if you can have an arena that's maybe slightly over 10% full be well mic'd for the crowd. But if you can, they certainly didn't achieve that here. It is fascinating, though, because at least as I watched the show, uh, uh, listening, you know, watching and listening to the audio on headphones, you can hear <laughs> you can hear a lot of the insults and, and things being yelled from the crowd. And th- this crowd, it is filled with there, there are three categories here. There are old men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are frat boys populating the front row all around who are very, very drunk and very vocal. They are very. And then yeah, they are, They came in drunk for the opening yes. match. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then there are uh, there are a lot of small children who are yelling yelling that the wrestlers are cheaters and such. And I thought of you immediately because that is something that you love to yell out at heels live at wrestling shows and hockey games. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that as well. That as well. When there's a penalty, you, you like to yell that as the man goes to the penalty box. <laughs> Rock and roll Buck Zumhoff versus the Sheik Adnan L. Casey in our opener. Um, lots of empty seats right in the shot of the hard camera. So like yes. you were mentioning, like that, that, that we know it's a bad sign when they can't even well, make the, when they the hard clearly, camera look okay. They tried to move, they moved everyone down or as many people as would be willing to, because there's the cheap seats, there's nobody in them. And I can guarantee you people bought the cheap seats and just got moved down. I've been to shows like that. And it is sad to see here that even with them doing that, there were still, you know, swaths of empty seats. And then also when they, you know, the ring entrances, which is very few exceptions. There's no music. Rod Trangard does not talk during the ring entrances, but you can just see again, the, the ocean of empty seats then as well. But yeah, this does not get off uh, uh, in an auspicious way. As you mentioned, we have rock and roll Buck Zumoff, who uh, we, we talked about it in the past on this podcast on top of being an awful wrestler and looking incredibly creepy. He clearly lived the gimmick, uh, considering the 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 uh, the jail time and the things he was convicted of. Uh, oh, okay. And he's taking on Sheik Adnan Al Casey, who was in the main event of the last show we did. Now in the opener here, this uh, is four years later, and Sheik Adnan Al Casey was was older than dirt then, um, and, and Buck Zumoff. He certainly didn't get less creepy uh, as the years went by here. He is, uh, he, he's, Buck is in horrendous dad bod shape, I wrote down. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, uh, and then he, Rod, Rod Trengard said that, quote, Buck Sumoff does not have his radio because Sheik Adnan Al Casey broke it, or I think he may have said bashed it over his head. So that is the, the impetus for this match, the boombox of, uh, of Buck Zumoff here had been broken over his head apparently. Um, but it didn't seem like this was a, a blood feud by any stretch. Cause we had like overhand wrist locks and such to start. Yeah. Buck Zumoff, like you mentioned, terrible human being in real life. Uh, he, he, he's terrible rotting in jail. Uh, good riddance to him. So we have to watch him wrestle here. The crowd makes me giggle because they start chanting Sheik's a freak <laughs> uh, after many minutes of nothing happening. Yes, nothing. Like just it's, the Sheik walking around yelling, bowing to the floor, stalling, Buck pacing around just with his oddly shaped body and arched back and just weird and bad. Yeah, then then Rod also makes a point and says that 
Buck is 218 pounds and maintains that weight steadfastly. Thanks, Rod. <laughs> uh, we finally got some offense here from somebody as Sheik went to the eyes, fingernail raking to the back. They're finally doing something. It's still nothing, if you ask me. And this was legitimately five minutes into the match. Uh, the, the moves that we saw were arm ringers, hair pulls, stomps, turnbuckle rams but then we did get to uh, a rod trangard staple call right here in the first match as we had a head knocker a head knocker the, uh, that's where you put the, the former, guy yeah you put the guy in a pile driver position but you just jump up and down instead that's yes the outlaw ron bass finisher uh, <laughs> here called the head knocker um buck then uh after that pulls chic adnan al casey to the, to the middle of the ring and does that kind of rolling hamstring stretch that you'd see guys do. And then this is the moment where Rod Trangar decides that he is so bored by this match, even though he's, he's feigning excitement, that he then goes to tell us the name of every single person on the production staff here from, was it McWilliams Entertainment? Multiple uh, we hear, times. We will we get hear about that again later. <laughs> Rob McWilliams, Terry McWilliams. We, we were told that someone named Meemaw is working the camera. Um, and yes, I believe three separate occasions on this super clash, uh, we are told the names of every single person on the and, production staff. Yeah, so Zoomhoff puts on what has to be the worst toehold leg lock thing <laughs> in history. He, I wrote down, Buck is putting on this toehold slower than anything I've ever seen in a wrestling ring. He, he just ends up wrapping the leg around his own leg in a natural position like yes. no one could possibly be in any pain whatsoever no. here it's it's more physical therapy than a move <laughs> um it, it almost it, it, he's so stiff in doing it it's like if you took wrestling figures that have no points of articulation and tried to have one do a spinning to hold to another it would look approximately like this it was so weird and a hip toss couple drop kicks how about control. how about the headlock? He grinds the headlock, and the ca the crowd counts to ten as he grinds each time on the headlock. I, I I cackled when this happened. The finish mercifully comes when Buck tries to monkey flip Sheik out of the corner, but Sheik pushes him down, pushes his legs up into a pinning attempt, puts his feet on the ropes, and pins Zoomhoff. Your winner. In a boring opener is the Sheik Adnan Al Casey. How long do you think this match was? One hour and 37 minutes. That's what it felt like. In real time, 10 minutes and 45 seconds. Still completely wow. absurd. But yeah. I, I believe I texted you uh, like three matches in. And I said, I'm, I'm 40 <laughs> minutes into this show and it feels like two and a half hours. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're not off to a good start. That was 10 minutes and 45 seconds of absolute boredom. 10 minutes and 45 seconds of our lives that we'll never get back. A few other things I do want to mention about this match. Um, at one point, uh, Sheik is in this this terrible, maybe it was the headlock, maybe it was the the spinning told, and he cries out in pain, and I write down, and this is, I was thinking of you as I wrote this down, he is no Ric Flair crying out in pain here. No, not at all. <laughs> other quick notes on this match. We got our first Rod Trongard, and maybe our only time in this show that he called something a judo chop. I was disappointed. Um, we also had, after this match was over, Buck then slams the Sheik's head off the top turnbuckle and unconvincingly says no, and then yells, come on, you jerk. 
Ugh. And that's that's thankfully the end of that. Yes, please stop this talking is... about that match. <laughs> we fade to black, we fade back up, and we see a man coming through the the very low energy entranceway, uh walkway down to the ring in what I wrote down looks like the prototype for the super invader costume. That's what I I so I said uh, we get masked karate looking guys coming out. Um uh, who curtsy. What was that? <laughs> and I <laughs> and children yell very insults at them. That's yeah. I, I wrote down that one man looks like uh, Super Invader, like like a, a less detailed version of that. If you no, can I said it, I I have it in my notes that he's the inspiration for the Super Invader <laughs> character from what a depressing the, legacy. The Clash of the Champions that we reviewed previously uh, for the debut of Super Invader. Uh, the, definitely an homage here. <laughs> the other man who accompanies to the ring looks like Quang. Remember Quang from from the WWF? It's similar. He, he has nunchucks. Uh, at this point, Ron uh, Rod Trangard clears his throat. Um, I, I I don't know why that amused me, but it did. Um, then we get this great shot as the match is about to start. As they come into the ring, we see a sea of empty seats, and the only thing we see in the shot is a bored child like resting his <laughs> chin on the guardrail. I'm like if memes were a thing in 1987 in the AWA, man. Twitter would have been a buzz uh, on May 2nd. It's actually, as a quick aside, it's crazy to think this show is one day shy of my sixth birthday. <laughs> so the, I don't know. It would not have been a birthday present if somebody would have taken me to this. But no, his just, opponent. Just know that his, two his, months two months earlier, the WWF was putting on WrestleMania 3 at the Pontiac Silverdome. So yeah. a little, little, little different in the uh, success <laughs> of the promotions here. Uh, so just, this Super Invader man is named Super Ninja, his right? Name is, or, wait, or no, wait, he's Mr. Go. The other guy is Super Ninja. The but guy Rod who wrestles Trangarl, the match is Super Ninja. Yeah. Yes, who? that's the Quang uh, gear guy. The other guy is Mr. Go. Mr. But Go. Rod Tr- the, the ring announcer introduces him as Mr. Go, and then Rod Trangard calls him Ninja Go the entire match. <laughs> like, like the... Uh... The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, song "Ninja Go" uh, from the Vanilla Ice. Uh, yes, yeah, that would have I, I would have watched or listened to a loop of that. So yeah, they, over this match, Super Ninjas introduces being from Japan, the Super Ninja, accompanied by Mister Go. His opponent is DJ Peterson, who comes out with music. First guy to come out with music on the show, and. DJ Peterson looks like he looks like the young AWA Scott Hall. Um, I wrote down DJ Peterson looks like a cross between AWA Scott Hall and Magnum TA. Yes, good. Now I have a fun fact and a sad fact about DJ Peter- Peterson. Which do you want first? Um, it's 2020 as we record this. Give me a sad fact. Sad fact. DJ Peterson died in a motorcycle crash at the age of 33. Wow. That, that is sad. And that, that explains why, cause I, I had no recollection of this guy and he wasn't particularly good, but he had a good look. He, he had a, what people, uh, what people running wrestling companies in the eighties like 100%. as a look. Yeah. And so I was kind of surprised that I had, did not know a whole lot about this man. And so that, that very sadly explains that fun fact. He was trained by Lord Littlebrook. And really? Rarely do you hear about a giant guy like this being trained by someone with dwarfism. And it, yeah. That, that is a fun. Lord Littlebrook was his trainer. 
I, I would not have expected that. I did not see a lot of stylistic similarities here. <laughs> um, yeah, but DJ Peterson, it, I'm surprised that like a guy with this good of a look and like that they clearly were doing something with or, or wanting to do something with, particularly out in the rosteras. I'm surprised they didn't like give him a name that popped more than DJ Peterson. Like he sounds like the guy that works next to you in the cubicle. <laughs> not like the guy they're going to try to push because they don't have Hulk Hogan anymore. So Rod Trongard has told us twice. <laughs> I know where you're going. In the beginning of this match that the ninja's fingers are not taped. And after the second time of pointing it out, he says, I can't tell you why. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> but then he's hard hitting journalism here. <laughs> yes. He's, he's obsessed with very weird, minute things. He did then speculate that Stanley Blackburn, the, the commissioner AWA of the AWA, the president of the AWA may have declared it illegal. Um, we then have a, a comment that is another one of those uncomfortable signs of the times uh, sort of comments as Rod Trongar just pa- in passing says that uh, the the uh, the super ninja is is doing oriental bows. So DJ Peterson, just a quick uh, uh, a quick stop in the fashion corner, real quick. DJ Peterson's <laughs> uh, so he's he's a generic. Big mulleted dude with a mustache, right? Yes, he's he's again he's Tom Selleck. Yeah, I mean he's like you said he's he's Scott Hall AWA or Magnum TA, but like with less hair. And he like weirdly, body hair. weirdly has big dollar signs on his white boots. Like, yeah, what was what was that? Because I, I, there's nothing in his character. No, I didn't understand. Like he does not have a character. He is big DJ from the gym who lifts. That's that's all he is. So Ninja's trying to get Peterson to shake his hand, and the people are way too into this. <laughs> yes, are... the, drunk, the drunk frat boys are fired up yelling at him, <laughs> slobbering as they half fall over the rail, telling him don't to do it. Don't do it, I should say. They tease the handshake for a long time as Rod Trongard tries, and I emphasize the word tries, to describe the Super Ninja suplex, whatever that is. We never see we it never in the saw match. It. No. Ninja... He bows, and Peterson nails him with a knee. Ninja's able to gain control. Thrown outside, Ninja Go gets involved. <laughs> Remember? And uh, Ninja Go, Mister <laughs> Ninja Go gets involved. And we'll go with uh, we'll go with Rod Trongard here. We'll, we'll honor his legacy and his life by calling him by calling this man Ninja Go. Super Ninja jumps off the apron, knocking Peterson to the rail. Peterson with a backslide gets a near fall, but Ninja's right back in control. His offense consists of punches, forearms, and kicks. Nothing super ninja-y about no. this offense whatsoever. I did not. He did not seem like an uh, an expert in the the art of ninjutsu. Um, we got by a, any stretch. We got a knee drop by the Ninja off the second rope. And then we I'm- did get that. I will say though, I should I should correct both of us slightly here because the one thing that uh, that uh, that the ninja does here, Super Ninja, that is awesome. He hits a huge savat kick that DJ runs into mouth first. That was actually pretty great. What was less great was the long Boston crab by the ninja, and Ninja missed an elbow off the second rope, allowing Peterson to make his comeback. Peterson goes for a drop kick. One one foot hits Ninja, but he mostly hurts himself. 
I think what was supposed to happen here was that uh, Ninja was supposed to grab the ropes and do, you know, the he holds on to the ropes spot and the, the guy misses a drop kick and takes a back bump. I'm pretty sure that's what was supposed to happen here. And, and Peterson tried to uh, improvise as best he could. Uh, there was also another great triangardism uh, where Go, or excuse me, uh, Super Ninja puts DJ Peterson in a reverse chin lock. And this is another direct quote. Rod, Tr- Rod Triangard says he calls it a, quote, a surfboard, a camel clutch, a very extremely painful hold, if you will. Ninja hits a spinning heel kick, which Trangar calls a whirling elbow smash. <laughs> yes, that was amazing. It was a good jump spin kick, and yes, a whirling elbow smash. I, I don't know if maybe he was trying to look through those extremely dark tinted sunglasses. It, uh, it looked cool. I get it. And oh, it did. Yeah, no, it was. It was. Trangard was rocking the uh, the look in '87. As we said uh, on the uh, the podcast where we reviewed AWA Super Sunday from 1983, uh, Rod Trongard calling is basically Ron Burgundy calling pro wrestling. Yes, it's a great comp, yeah. Uh, sunset flip by Peterson, ref counts two. Ninja grabs the rope, and the bell rings. Then there's a yeah. small package. The ref counts two, then taps Peterson on the back, and the bell rings again. Trongard then tells us, that this went to a time limit draw. I I yelled, "What is going on here?" I did not understand how well, they we never got, they never counted down think... the time. They never told us w- what was going on. All of a sudden, just time limit draw and appears. The referee didn't even realize it was a time limit draw. Was, everybody was confused. This match went 15 minutes to the draw. I don't even know if did the ring announcer even announce it as a time limit draw. This was so strange. Like you said, he hits that sunset, the sunset flip. The ref doesn't count three, but the bell rings. And not only so then, like you said, DJ hits an inside cradle. The ref counts two, stops. Yeah. Then he raises, but not only does he stop, he doesn't just tap DJ on the back. He raises DJ Peterson's hand. And this is happening at the, precisely the time that Trongard is screaming about being a time limit draw. Just weird. Yeah. This, this was not great. Um, AWA, this was 57 minutes, right? It was <laughs> what felt like an eternity, 15 minutes. Jeez. AWA Ladies Championship. The challenger, Medusa Michelli versus the champion, Sherry Martell, accompanied by Adam's dad, pretty boy Doug Summers. <laughs> Not exactly. Thankfully, the spelling is completely different. So, uh, so nobody can make that mistake here. Um, there, there is first off, when I saw the card for this show, I was looking forward to this match, particularly given the wasteland that was a lot of the rest of the show, at least names wise. Uh, but there is, there is a lot to get to on the fashion report for all, all three of these people (laughs) involved in this match. First off, it's very weird to see Sherry Martell, a wrestling, because like, I know she's a wrestler. I've seen her wrestle before, but not that often. And it's even weirder to see her wearing Hulk Hogan's colors of red and yellow. <laughs> I did not expect that. Uh, Medusa, she is, for one, like, she is jacked. She She's is huge. Ripped. Absolutely. Huge arms. Like, total, total, like, bodybuilder build. And then she, the only, thing, the only thing I could describe about her look, particularly her haircut, is that she looks like she is, like, the lost member of Def Leppard. Oh, yeah. No, she's, she's, 
enjoying the big 80s hair. Sherry Martell also, big 80s hair. It was fantastic. Uh, th- those were those were good looks for the ladies, but... Uh, uh, ooh, that Doug Summers jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Everything about Doug Summers' look is rough. And it's also, it's a fascinating pair of Doug Summers and Sherry Martell. Because Sherry, as we've talked about on previous podcasts, the Saturday Night's Main Event one sticks out. She is just such a dynamic presence and She's force great. on the screen. She is one of those people that the moment she steps you know, through the curtain, she is on in every single thing she does. She's just she's a magnetic personality. You can't help but watch everything that she does. Doug Summers, by comparison, by any comparison, really, is just he exists. He he <laughs> He does not, he doesn't, he's like, Sherry is being Sherry throughout this match. Doug Summers ostensibly is there to, like, help her or cheer her on, and he seems comatose at ringside. So we get Sherry sucks chance, and she is freaking out over it. She, she doesn't even want to let go of the belt as, as they're ch- <laughs> chanting uh, Sherry sucks. Sherry is so awesome in Everything she does here, the way she's interacting with the fans, the way she's yelling at the fans, everything she interacting, does is great. Interacting with the ref, even. So we and have this ref, great, oh, this, so good. this great thing at the beginning of the match where uh, the ref is reading the rules, like telling them what the rules are, and like the ref says no hair pulling. So then she pulls the ref's hair to basically ask him, "Do you mean this? I can't like do this." this. Yeah, <laughs> and so it kind of goes on like that. So that was. Again, Sherry is great. We're also we're we're joined. Rod is joined by Ray Stevens for this match Legend on commentary, and he, yes, in the San Francisco area. Absolutely. Sherry pulls Medusa down by the hair, goes to work on the arm. When the ref's out of sight, Sherry's biting the fingers of Medusa. This is fantastic. Medusa's screaming that she's biting my fingers. <laughs> Medusa fights back. Sherry hits a terrible-looking dropkick. Medusa, though, she gets a spinning toe hold, showing Buck Zumhoff how to do it properly. <laughs> <laughs> then rolls. She would she would do a spinning toe hold, but then she would roll them forward into the toe hold again. That was pretty this cool. Was, she did that a couple times. Yes, this is a, a spot I haven't seen in a long time. Or yeah, you basically you have your leg like laced through your opponent's leg. They're back to the mat. You're standing. Your back is to the corner. And from that position, you grab you grab their hand with your hand and you just you roll through. And on top of rolling through into a deeper leg lock, you also smack the person's head off the mat, the back of their head off the mat. Very cool. Uh, I also just have to briefly go back and mention my favorite part of this match, which is very early on when Sherry bells to the floor a small child is yelling at her and she takes a swing at the child. She does. It's great. <laughs> her everything. Inter- her interaction with the fans, top notch. Like she, she like you mentioned, you she's the most charismatic person on pretty much this entire show. She was fantastic. Yeah. I would say that's a that's a fair bet, which then makes it even crazier when you think about that that pairing between or with her and macho man randy savage like what an all-time great pairing of wrestler and manager so there's lots of working holds more than moves with these two in this match medusa with eventually with a few forearms and a clothesline for a near fall airplane spin on sherry goes for the cover but summers on the apron takes the ref we get the visual pin 
and the crowd is finally reacting at this point in this match. Medusa goes after Summers, but Sherry rolls her up, grabs a handful of tights, gets the pin, your winner, and still ladies champion, Sherry Martell. And then DJ Peterson comes out to tell the ref yeah. what happened. <laughs> I was uh, I was not expecting that. I, I was uh, surprised by that as well. Uh, yeah, that airplane spin was like an airplane spin bomb. That was, was not something I was expecting to see here. Uh, Medusa was... She was very early on in her career at this point. She was pretty green. Clearly, she became a very, very good wrestler as the years went by. Her run in the WWF as uh, Alundra Blaze was fantastic. Um, the other note that I have here is what I wrote down at the end of the match, kind of going back to what I said about this pairing of Sherry and Doug Summers. Sherry Martell has so much charisma. Doug Summers, meanwhile, is basically an unintentional Orange Cassidy. <laughs> nice. 11 minutes on that match. And yes, we get Kurt Hennig making his way out. <laughs> yes, and 1987 yes, Kurt Hennig. Yes, again, we get Nick Bockwinkle coming out. And I, I thought we were at the end of the show. <laughs> I was thrilled. <laughs> Wishful thinking. I was, I've, well, I, I had looked at the card ahead of time and I didn't look at the results, but I looked at the card ahead of time. And I saw that the AWA world title match was smack dab in the middle of this show. And this wasn't like it was a throwaway defense. It was Nick Bockwinkle defending against Kurt Hennig. Yeah. My mind flashed back to Super Sunday 1983 when Hulk Hogan and Nick Bockwinkle wrestled uh, seemingly inexplicably in not the main event. And we know the the uh, the screwy finish to that match. And I immediately got scared thinking about well why is this match where it is on the card and i thought this i thought that i'd been watching the show for two hours it seemed like <laughs> the right time to put on the main event and the I, i'm like oh maybe there's one match i you know i could see the runtime there was still more to come and i'm like yeah, i figure there's uh there might be another match like they did at the super sunday show Vern Gagne might show or up may, and have to maybe go they'll go last. 60 <laughs> yes yeah, so uh, yeah i was pretty excited i was pretty excited for these two i would be proved Way wrong by the end of this match. So they introduce AWA president Stanley Blackburn, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, Larry Zabisco interrupts. He says that he's the actual number one contender. He wants a match against the winner. And Blackburn says, you got it. All right. I don't think enough can be said about Larry Zabisco's hair here. He had a great head of hair. It was it was an 80s beginning to bald mullets and it really accentuated his look as like the lost Belushi brother, particularly <laughs> when he was younger. He was, yeah, he, he was as Larry Zabisco as it gets. Your AWA world heavyweight champion here is Nick Bockwinkle. Your challenger, Kurt Hennig. Bockwinkle is 52 years old here. And Kurt Hennig is 29 years old. Bockwinkle I was thinking about that as I was watching this because he's 52. That would have made him 48 at that previous AWA show from 1983 that we reviewed. And Bachwinkle's one of those guys that he hit a certain age early in his career in terms of how he looked. And then he visually never got older. And this is absolute confirmation of that here. It's a JJ Dillon syndrome. Yeah. Where yes. you just perpetually look old. Yeah, absolutely. So, they trade grappling early, Bachwinkle with a slap, and Trongard describes it 
uh, as a move counter move match so far. Yes, which it absolutely uh, it absolutely was to this point. A quicker pace at the beginning than than I was thinking it would be with these two guys and and, and kind of I thought how this match would go, particularly because uh, Trongard told us as this match was starting that uh, the last time they wrestled each other, they, they went, went to a full one hour draw and what he described as one of the roughest, toughest, and most outstanding wrestling matches of all time. That match did get fantastic reviews, so I, I had high hopes coming into this one. And watching these two trading these moves was so much better than anything on this show. <laughs> oh, by a by a mile. Absolutely. I mean, Nick Bockwinkel was a master, obviously, by this point. Kurt Hennig was not as good as he was going to be, but he was still pretty great. And it was cool as well because you could tell that, well, obviously, they had a map of where they were going to go and you know they knew what the finish was going to be. You could see these guys just calling this as they went uh, and they had enough familiarity with each other and just, they were both good enough by this point uh, that they were able to pull it off. Uh, I also liked how uh, early on uh, Henning's getting a little bit of the advantage and, and Trongard says that, you know, right now Kurt's youth endurance and strength are giving him the advantage. And then Ray Stevens, who's still on commentary for this match makes a great point saying that Kurt Henning's mean streak is the thing that separates him from all the other younger wrestlers we see in the AWA. Yeah, this, the early story of the match was anything you can do, I can do better in the early stages. So it was youth versus experience, and they went back. It was also, it, it apparently, and I didn't really grasp this till we got to the end, but apparently it was like face versus face. Nick Bockwinkle was not really a, a full-fledged heel here, so this was just two guys wrestling for the most part until we get to, uh, until we get to the finish. Uh, one thing I, I want to bring up before I forget about it, I think it was around this time uh, a ref or excuse me, a fan yells something and it sounded, and I'm sure this isn't what they said, but it sounded like they said, and I quote, I've seen a better fight at Sabaro. <laughs> Hennig throws Bachwinkle to the corner. He charges in for a shoulder. Bachwinkle moves and Hennig flies through the middle and the top rope all the way to the floor. All this the way was to awesome. the guardrail, selling like he, he hit his head on the guardrail. This was awesome, yeah. And it was fantastic because it wasn't the uh, the way overused spot of the guy hitting his shoulder on the post. He went all the way through the uh, the the ropes and all the way, like you said, out to the floor and hit his head and his shoulder uh, even more so on the guardrail, and that that really set the tone for the next part of the match. That's right. Henning is he's favoring his elbow on the floor, and he's doing a great job showing you know how the an injury to the elbow and he's trying to work through it. Bockwinkle sees it and immediately goes to work on the injured arm. Not, not even letting him back into the ring. Several times Kurt Henning tries to get back through the ropes and either once he gets onto the apron or as he starts ducking his head through the ropes, Bockwinkle kicks the arm. You mentioned Zabisco's hair. He's sitting at ringside. You didn't mention he's in a tux. Oh, he is. Yeah, he is. He is dressed to the nines, Larry Zabisco, on this evening. And he's sitting right there at ringside. Someone holds up a sign that said, Larry is a spud head. No, it said stupid head. Is that what it said? It, I, I'm, I think it said stupid head. Maybe 
Somebody, somebody will go back and watch this show. Why I it don't will, know. It will not be either of us. Yeah, uh, no. tweet us, uh, send us a tweet. Let us know. Was that Larry's a spud head or Larry's a stupid head on that sign? I, mean, I think e- either applies, and I think he probably would have appreciated either uh, insult. <laughs> but yes, let us know. Maybe we'll put that up as a poll on Twitter. Our first poll. Uh, <laughs> Loud. Of this show. Larry sucks. Chance from this crowd. Hennig on the comeback whips Bockwinkle into the ropes. Puts his head down for a backdrop, and Bockwinkle kicks him hard in the yes. chest. Yes, this was this was great. It, it was it was cool too because this wasn't a match where like everything got laid in hard. So that then when you saw something like that, it really it really registered. And Bockwinkle back in control. That meant back to the arm. And Bockwinkle had a short arm scissors on Hennig's arm. And he's got this hold on, and Bockwinkle is laughing and joking with the people. I thought that was so cool. And, and it was just, great, too, his, because... His cockiness it was great. At the same time, uh, the ref is asking uh, Kurt if, if, he, uh, you know, if he wants to submit, and Kurt's like, I'll never give up, which and was the, great. Yeah, and as soon as Hedig starts to break the hold, then Bockwinkle immediately snaps and gets serious again. <laughs> Loved it. Yeah. That, that was great. Hennig goes to work on the leg of Bockwinkle. We get a figure four by Hennig, and the crowd is into it now. They're, 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 they're into it big time. Stevens on commentary points out, Hennig is not a master of this hold, so it might not be on exactly how it should be, but it's still very punishing, and it's still, but it's still unlikely to beat the champion, which I, I thought was uh, really good color commentary by Ray Stevens. I thought it was, and it was true in the sense that it wasn't one of Kurt Hennig's main moves or one he utilized it often, but sitting here watching this, he had executed the move perfectly. It was, so, it was on perfect a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the, the point, so I, I liked hearing a color commentator doing like real sports type of analysis of what he was seeing in the ring. So yeah, full marks to Ray Stevens there. After a rope break, Bachwinkle fights back with punches Bockwinkle with a running knee, but it's the knee that was hurt in the figure four, so he crumbles. Yes, this was great. It was a running knee to the stomach off the ropes, which is huge. But like you said, his own injured knee, he uh, he crumbles down. He's only able to get the, get the two count. Then we get an awesome spot where they each punch each other at the exact same time and go down. Uh, right in we've the middle seen of the this, ring. Yep. Yeah, I feel like we've seen this or variations of this uh, a lot, but this... I just thought this was very well done and one of the better times I've seen. Like it, a lot of times it looks very contrived. This just looked the timing like... timing was really good. Yeah, like two guys throwing a punch at the same time. Like they threw their punches like they normally would. You know, a lot of times when you see something like this, it, it just, it looks awkward. It doesn't look the way the guys would normally do something. Uh, this was not that. Hennig fights back, but Bachwinkle reverses the whip into the corner and Hennig hits the corner hard and does a great bump out of the corner. Yeah, it goes flying out of the corner with a back bump. Not his somersault bump that he would do out of the corner in later years uh, from, from the same Irish whip, but still very cool. Two count after that. Hennig rams Bockwinkle face first into the mat twice. Bockwinkle almost doing like a headstand taking that move. Was- he, yeah, he basically took took this face ram into the mat like you would take a brain buster or a really nasty ddt it was it was a sight to behold cross body for another two count by hennig bachwinkle whipped off the ropes 
Hennig nails him with a forearm to the head that he calls the axe. Yeah, I think this was this was an homage to uh, his dad, Larry the Axe Hennig, and his finisher. But it, to describe it, it's basically like a if you threw a hard clothesline, but you aimed directly at the guy's forehead or the top of his head instead of his throat. Very unique, very different. Uh, you'd see Henning use it in later years, but more of just like a move doing comeback rather than like, uh, you know, like a finisher. But yeah, very he got, good. He gets the two count because Bachwinkle grabs the bottom rope. Hennig nails a pile driver and a perfect, pun intended, standing drop kick to Bachwinkle's face. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a, a perfect standing drop kick from the future, the uh, future Mister Perfect. The you know one of the best you're ever going to see uh, in, in the mid '80s, mid to late '80s. Here, also the pile driver from Kurt Hennig. It was great, and Nick Bachwinkle like getting pile driven and then trying to kind of get up and collapsing into the ropes. I loved as well. There's so many little things that Bachwinkle does, uh, whether it be selling moves or in between moves that you just don't see other people ever do. He he's, he's just a very interesting wrestler to watch. Super unique. Absolutely. Bachwinkle out of the corner, nails a clothesline that causes Hennig to flip completely around shoulder block by Hennig. Both men are down. And at this point, Larry Zabisco gets up. He walks over to Kurt Hennig, who's down near the ropes. Yeah, sort of like slumped over, like arms hanging over the uh, the bottom rope. Hennig gets up and nails Bachwinkle with a right hand, a punch to the face. He covers him for the three count. Hennig then is seen putting something in his tights. Larry had given him a weapon of some kind. But we never, crucially, we never see the weapon we being given it. to him on any of the camera shots. From this hard camera, uh, it looks, which is what Rod Trangard says as it's happening, it looks as though uh, Larry is just going over to Kurt Hennig and telling him something. So we, we don't necessarily expect this coming. Uh, but yeah, that, that is apparently what happens at this point. Ray Stevens is losing his mind, saying, I'm not having any of this, saying that, that Larry Zabisco gave Kurt Hennig an object. Uh, and then we get a lot of from here and you'll describe it. We get some mass chaos and confusion. We've got, yeah, we're, we're showing a new AWA champion with Kurt Hennig, uh, while Ray Stevens is in the ring and he's, he's explaining what he was just yelling about to the ref and Stanley Blackburn that he thinks that something's up here. Larry gave Kurt a weapon. Detective Ray Stevens sees coins <laughs> on the mat. So Well, he doesn't it's not that he sees coins. He he goes up to Larry Zabisco and tugs at his waistband <laughs> and a roll of quarters falls out onto the mat. So it, it so yeah, it must have been a roll of coins here that Hennig used. And Hennig is now at this point wearing the belt in the ring. But Every, not leaving. It's like nope. wrestling 101. Get out of the <laughs> ring with when you've got the belt. Don't let them take the belt from you, Kurt. So there's so much chaos that everyone in the audience is even on their feet to see what's about to happen here. And Blackburn announces that they're going to hold up the title. Neither man is champion. So everyone is mad. Loud bullshit chants from this crowd. Everybody's mad. Bachwinkle gets interviewed. He's he's screaming. He's 15 years my junior, and it didn't make a difference. I was hanging in there, taking the best he had. This is a great promo. He talks about how like his 
all of a sudden my lights go out and I don't know what's going on. I think he just caught me with a good shot, but then I, you know, then I hear all this about, about coins or whatever. Um, and then at this point, Kurt Hennig comes and shoves he him from behind him out of the way. Yeah. During so, the interview. Yes. During the interview at this point, I, I, I wrote down, I just have to note it here. Like there's a couple layers. First off, terrible finish. Like let's get Horrible. that out of the way. Terrible finish. Extremely disappointing. Cause this was an awesome match up to this point, but Given that this was a terrible finish, what they did afterward was so well executed in terms of the the chaos, the confusion, the ringside interviewing by Rod Trangard and then Kurt Hennig coming uh, coming from behind and shoving uh, shoving Bachwinkle, and then they had this this argument that wasn't like a pro wrestling argument. I no, don't know how else to describe it. It's like everybody arguing, just a crazy yes. argument. Like they're yelling back and forth, but it it was it was a realistic type of argument uh i also have to note here that i loved that i believe it was stanley blackburn said that the belt will be held in escrow <laughs> now, now until and, and, until they review the film the championship committee has to review the film so you want to know why this this company is dying Rem this is a terrible championship finish remember that the end of that super uh the end of the uh the the aw super sunday show we reviewed also had a horrible finish to the championship match you can only do these terrible finishes so many times and they've been doing them for so many years at this point of course you're going to run people off kurt gets interviewed and trongard gets right to the heart of the matter did larry give you something and then Zabisco interrupts and says, the ref counted three. Kurt should be champ. My lawyers will have a field day with this. And he was peak Larry Zabisco here. <laughs> he was he was fantastic. He also then like cuts in again and says the ref just told him that Kurt won and Kurt is the champion. Then we get the ref. Uh, they attempt to interview the ref and Kurt Hennig immediately slaps the referee and says that's what will happen to anyone who gets in between him and, and his AWA World Championship. So this match went 26 minutes, and I had to know what happened. Yeah, what, like what, what happened next? Why, what, was, what was going on with this? Why, was, why did this happen? So uh, I turned to Dave Meltzer in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. The idea was that they were grooming Hennig after establishing him as a heel to win the title from Bockwinkle a few months down the line at a summer spectacular. But Hennig had other plans. Before this match, when word was out that Hennig was being primed for a big push, the WWF started negotiating with Kurt Hennig again. And since Hennig had yet to get the promised title belt, the idea was agreed upon that Hennig, who was tired of waiting for what had been promised to him for about six months, he would do the match, beat the champion on television, and even though he wouldn't get the title, he would disappear and show up on WWF television, thus embarrassing the AWA one more time. The, the company had huge plans for Hennig as a wrestling babyface, but... Larry the Axe Hennig, his dad, pressured Kurt to once again go and back out of the deal with WWF when the Ganyas, Greg and, uh, and Vern Ganya, agreed to change the storyline and simply announced that the Cow Palace match 
that we just saw was the title change. So on May 23rd, 1987, more than two weeks after this match took place, that's when it was announced that the championship committee had voted 4-2 to two, that since there was no evidence of a conspiracy between Henning and Zabisco and that the film couldn't show conclusively that Hennig had used a foreign object to beat Bockwinkle. The tape was shot with, the, with, the, with that idea on purpose to explain why Bockwinkle simply wasn't getting the title back. So Hennig was still the champion, and Hennig would eventually go to the WWF after losing the AWA title to Jerry Lawler after he was promised he'd get the title back in a quick rematch. When that didn't happen, he left for good for WWF and would eventually become... Mr. Perfect. Wow. The AWA, everybody. (laughs) Pretty boy Doug Summers. Hackensack Hammer Buddy Wolf. (laughs) Hackensack Hammer Buddy Wolf, who I wrote down is Dime Store Harley Race. And Mr. Magnificent Kevin Kelly. They come out managed by Sherry Martell. Mr. Magnificent Kevin Kelly, I I went on a journey here in this match because I saw this man, and when I the first thing I wrote down is tall, no knee pads, jacked Stan Lane. He he can't do anything. He's terrible. Everything he's he's like he's big, he's jacked, but everything he does looks super light. And then as the match wears on, a light bulb goes off, and, and I realize, oh my god. Kevin Kelly in the AWA went on to be Nails. Oh, did he? Oh, yes. I, ah, he was Nails. I and did so not it make is that connection. Wild to see this, this like kind of balding, long-haired, like really, really cheap-looking kind of Hulk Hogan type-looking guy. That years later he went on to be Nails the Convict in the <laughs> WWF in the orange jumpsuit with the crazy eyes, not in great shape. Wow. With the uh, the scruff, the whole deal. Um, and you, anyone who saw Nails in the WWF knew that he was a terrible wrestler. And yeah, he was not any better here in 1987. So they're taking on the tag team champions, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, the Midnight Rockers, and their partner, Ray Stevens. Out from yeah. the back from the commentary table, in the gear, hitting the ring. Ray Stevens is 51 years old here. Shawn Michaels, 22 years old at this point. Yeah, and Ray Stevens, uh, God bless him at 51, is is not Nick Bockwinkle at 52. No. Uh, he literally, he does, yeah, we'll get into it, how, how this match ends. Um, the other thing to note here with the Midnight Rockers, as they were known then before they went to, to the WWF and became known as just the Rockers, is that if you ever wondered what, uh, both Joey Janela and the Young Bucks, where they got their gear inspiration from, look no further than the Midnight Rockers making their way to the ring here on May 2nd, 1987. So I expected a bigger ovation when Stevens got in, but there was no reaction whatsoever. I don't know if the crowd was still down after the finish of the last match or what. But... I think that's a huge part of it. I think for sure. Um yeah, and also, I mean, Ray Stevens, again, like he he did not look that great physically, uh, to say the least. He was, he, I mean, like we saw him from behind and he looked fine, and then you saw him from the front and he, he was large. 
Um, and yeah, it, I mean, it's also, it's Ray Stevens and look who his opponents are. This wasn't like there's a whole lot for people to, uh, to get excited about And Jeremy, this match, I, I don't know how much you want to go to this, go through this in excruciating detail. No, not at all. I have, I have, <laughs> I have some details. It'll be excruciating just because of what this match was, but yes, there's one particular segment of this match, which is basically the whole match, which I don't think I've ever seen anything in a wrestling ring drag on longer oh, than, than the part that we'll describe. So Jannetty jumps off the second rope, like twisting into a crossbody. Mr. Magnificent Kevin Kelly catches him in midair, walks him to their corner, lays him across the top turnbuckle, and the bad guys start their triple team. And the bad guys beat up Jannetty for a long time. For hours, seemingly. There have to be, and I, I, have a, I, I wrote down each time, I should have counted it, there have to be seven, eight, maybe even to, into double digits the amount of times where Marty Jannetty fights back and then they cut him off before he can make the tag. I have never in my life, in 36 years, uh, as I'm 39 years old, 36 years of watching professional wrestling, so I have times. never seen so many times where a wrestler gets cut off and I've never seen so like this long and excruciatingly boring of a heat segment in a tag team match in my life. Stevens and Shawn Michaels keep coming in to help, but every time they do, the bad guys triple team some more in boring fashion. And th these triple teams are, it is punches, kicks, and Kevin Kelly has the worst kicks you've oh, ever so seen in bad. your life. He doesn't move like a wrestler. Nothing he does looks like it hurts. Uh, Doug Summers, the only cool thing the heels do in this match is, I believe it's Doug Summers, as a, a gut wrench into a gut buster. That was cool. Um the 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 Hackensack Hellraiser or whatever he is, he uh he really doesn't do anything, no. but he still is miles better than the two men he's in the ring with. And again, I think it's just because his passing resemblance to Harley Race makes you think he's better than he is. But this uh it is the other weird thing, and we see this a few times, is like we have these very strange, and this isn't the only match where it happens, these very strange quick tags from the heels. Like we have a few times where Kevin Kelly like tags in doesn't even do a move and then tags right back out. And it's not like part of a story. It's just weird. Jannetty's thrown to the corner. He flips, goes up and over to the floor. Like the, uh, the triple H, uh, not really the flare bump, but the triple H bump where he gets thrown to the corner, goes over the top and then onto the floor that way. Finally, we get some Shawn Michaels here. He's fighting with Kelly. They they start fighting in the ring. It breaks down. Stevens on the outside slams Doug Summers on the floor. Hard. There are no mats on this floor. I don't know if Bill Watts was brought in as a consultant for this show <laughs> or what, but yeah, no mats on the floor. Referee finally gets control of the match. It's Wolf and Jannetty in the ring now. The Jannetty beatdown continues. Kids actually finally start chanting, Marty, Marty, but... Jannetty fights back and with lots of right hands, only to have Wolf kick him in his bad leg again, cut off again, and cut and off again. And let's be clear here. Marty is great as a babyface in peril. None of this is on him here. He is he does his job tremendously in this match. He is just in this position for way too long. Yeah. I can say that, you know, Doug Summers is solid. 
Kelly sucks, and I cannot make an assessment on Wolf. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> Buddy Wolf. No. I don't know because he doesn't do anything. No, he really just can't. Basically, yeah. Doug Summers does a few things. He's he's passable but terribly boring. Kevin Kelly looks like he's never been in a wrestling ring in his life. And then Wolf is kind of just the guy that sets up other guys to do stuff, and they're not even doing much for that that he's setting up. So the the highlight for me of the heat segment here was Wolf has Janetti and a half crab. Michaels from the outside reaches yes. in and he starts slapping Janetti to try to keep him from passing out, try to fire him up to make a tag, give him some fighting spirit. This was a really unique uh, spot that I, 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 I didn't really remember seeing any in, in any other match. I thought that was really cool. It was cool. This is like something you would expect Yuji Nagata to do to a yes. young lion that he was teaming with in New Japan or something. But because it's this match, after they do this, it fires Marty up. Marty hits a backdrop, but he gets cut He's off again. Cut off again. And <laughs> Janetti. I was so angry watching this match. So angry. <laughs> it made me. I adore pro wrestling like very few things in my life. And it made me hate the very idea of professional wrestling existing. Janetti reversed the suplex and finally, after an eternity, makes a tag. The place is actually going crazy at this point. And it's the most excited I think the crowd's been all show was for Michaels getting the hot tag and running wild on everybody. Yeah, punches, backdrops, back elbow. And then at this point, uh, Scott Ledoux loses control again. We have all six men in paired off. We have a triple noggin knocker, which I can't say I've ever seen before, uh, which then leads to the finish. All three bad guys collide into each other. Wolf and Kelly fall to the floor. Stevens gets Summer in a small package for the three count. The Ray people, Stevens wasn't legal. <laughs> the people are thrilled. Great reaction at the end. This match was 16 minutes and 14 and a half minutes had to have been Janetti selling. This yeah, and I don't think detail. that's an exaggeration. No. But so, Ray Stevens was not legal. I can't emphasize this <laughs> enough. We have this whole thing, this whole 14-minute heat segment. It leads to Marty Jannetty tagging Shawn Michaels. Michaels. Right. Shawn Michaels runs wild, and then the man who never got in the match legally, Ray Stevens, gets the pin. Do you know who would Just, be outraged? Ray Stevens on commentary would be yes. in the ring yelling at the referee, this is a travesty. We can't Absolutely. let this happen. Yeah, Absolutely. If this was for the non-existent AWA six-man tag team championship, there would have been the the uh, the escrow vault would have been bursting at the seams with uh, with titles held up. Uh, so there's we, still more, everybody. I, we get an announcement that this is the semi-main event, which means there's more of this show. And I literally I wrote in my notes, "Please end." <laughs> I I couldn't imagine that there there's still a main event to come. This is awful so the semi as i as i heard that i you know the the famous phrase the tape machines are rolling i was begging for the tape machines to stop rolling so this this is your semi-main event jerry the crusher blackwell with rock and roll buck zoomhoff come out to take on boris zukov who's accompanied by sheik ednan el casey 
is they they announce they announce Jerry Crusher Blackwell at four hundred and seventy pounds, which is absurd. Granted, the Crusher Jerry Blackwell is a large, large man, but he is also a short man. There is no way on earth that he is four hundred and seventy pounds here. No, I did mention in the nineteen eighty three Super Sunday review, and I'll repeat myself here. Jerry Blackwell has. California Raisin Syndrome, where he's a big, fat, round guy with tiny legs. and uh, Yes, his gear is, it is very interesting, and by that I mean not interesting at all. It is, he wears a black singlet, he wears long black trunks, he wears a black t-shirt under his black singlet, and it is, I know black is slimming, but it, it only adds to the appearance of like the twig legs on the 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 like load bearing body uh it is it's yeah he he it is a look for sure when now when he was in he was in the main event teaming with the sheik jerry blackwell uh in the in the 1983 show that we reviewed wasn't he a doctor wasn't he dr jerry blackwell was i he don't a, think so i he was i thought he was crusher was he crusher okay all right i thought he was crusher maybe he was doctor i mean who knows maybe i mean who knows maybe it's a it's a mr go ninja go thing <laughs> so boris zukov he he has a bald head except for a ponytail it's a it's a weird hairdo he's got he's got a ponytail it did not seem like a particularly soviet hairdo either no but a completely shaved head otherwise all stalling early. Blackwell drops a fat guy elbow drop for a two count. This is a point where you say all stalling early. He hits uh, Jerry Blackwell hits an avalanche splash in the corner. And Trongard gets very excited by this, quote, fast pace action, unquote. <laughs> Zukov to the eyes, biting, choking. This is hideously boring. We get back rakes from, from Blackwell in return. Uh, there's a great comment here, a great uh, line from, from Trongard, where as Jerry Blackwell rakes the back of Boris Zukov, Ron says, or Rod, I should say, says, and the red becomes redder. Uh, Rod Trongard, you can tell he's bored because, again, he's reintroducing the entire crew, every cameraman, the directors in the truck, etc. Everyone gets an introduction. The third time on this show. Yes, again. So he's McNichols, bored. I, I will remember and know more about McNichols Productions than anything else or anyone else on this show. Zukov on the second rope gets caught with a punch to the gut. Blackwell has a headlock on Zukov. He pushes him off. Blackwell bumps into the ref, who tumbles out to the floor. The Sheik attacks two-on-one as Buck Zumhoff is helping the ref while his friend is getting double-teamed and beat up. Yeah, I wrote that as well. What, like, what a terrible friend. Your, your, uh, your friend, your partner is getting beat up by two guys in the ring, and you're out there concerned about the ref? Yeah, Blackwell makes his own comeback, hits a double clothesline on Sheik and Zukov. Covers Zukov, and Buck Zumhoff throws the ref into the ring. He counts three. Your winner is Jerry Blackwell, and I can't believe I had to say Zukov and Zumhoff in the same match. <laughs> You're being far too kind, by the way, to that finish, or at least the the production <laughs> from the fine folks at McNichols on that finish. As we see the double clothesline, 
Jerry Blackwell goes for the pin. And then we see the left arm or right arm of the referee kind of make its way into the screen. And he, he starts to make the count halfway in, halfway out. But thank God for Rod Trodgard because we wouldn't even know that it was Buck Zumoff that threw the ref back in. Uh, we also had, after the match, Sheik is out on the floor yelling at Trangard, and Trangard says back, hey, Sheik, you got what was coming to you. Great this, man. Great, great man. This match was 10 minutes. They had to have done less than two minutes of stuff. Yeah, it was boring. And now your main event of the evening... Thank God. Russ Francis in a San Francisco 49ers jacket and Superfly Jimmy Snuka versus the terrorist and the mercenary. The mercenary, we're told, is a replacement for Colonel De Beers. And if you believe Wikipedia, the terrorist was Brian Knobs future member of the Nasty Boys tag team. Wow, and, I did not realize that. And the mercenary was Ron Fuller. So, Russ Francis was the tight end for the San Francisco 49ers football team at the time. Francis appeared in a 20-man battle royal at WrestleMania II in 1986, so this was not his first wrestling match. Francis wants to fight the terrorist, but he tags out to the mercenary. So Snooka tags in with the terrorist, and they do this back and forth. Francis and Snooka have had enough of this, and they just attack both men. Francis chases the terrorist all the way to the back of the locker room. The story here is that the terrorist slapped Russ Francis's father during a different show at the Cow Palace. Well, they don't even say, I assume it was during a different show, but we don't even get that much information. Like the way it's described, I assume that, that Russ Francis's dad and this wrestler named the terrorist were both just wandering around the cow palace <laughs> and be. pumped into each other. And that's what happened. I like your story better than the, <laughs> than the one I crafted. Yeah. That, that's a good, <laughs> um, Fun fact. Francis's father was Ed Francis who was a pro wrestling promoter in Hawaii in the 1960s. Well, there you go. And I guess would that be then the connection between Russ Francis and Jimmy Snuka? Since Rod Trangard told us that Jimmy Snuka now made his residence in Hawaii. I love how we can connect these dots. Francis and Snuka are in the ring waiting for the bad guys to emerge. Mercenaries and terrorists double team Snuka. Ron Trangard again for the second time during this show, accidentally says that they're at the Showboat <laughs> Casino in Vegas. However, they are still at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. It is a great moment when he realizes that he said this. He Again. goes, we're in the Showboat Casino. And then he, Rod yells, hello there. <laughs> like to remind himself, oh, yes, I am wrong. Uh, we are, in fact, in San Francisco, not in uh, Las Vegas. Francis has had enough. He comes in and grabs the mercenary, beating him up while the terrorist chokes Snooka over in the corner. The ref finally puts Francis out again. Terrorist off the ropes. Snooka with a leapfrog. 
the terrorist off the ropes again, Snooker with another leapfrog, but he doesn't turn around just like a blind leapfrog. And he almost doesn't clear it, but but barely yeah. does. Hits a chop, barely makes the tag to Russ Francis. And Francis with forearms, a tackle, slams the terrorist. Snooker with a headbutt off the top. Then we get, I have to jump in, Jeremy, because... Again, I've been watching wrestling for three and a half decades <laughs> and it's, you know, you kind of, you lose hope as a wrestling fan, this deep into your run that you will ever see something that's either the best or worst move that you've seen, like the best or worst execution of a move you've ever seen. Yes. And I can say with 100% clarity and confidence that the top rope splash that Russ Francis hits here to get the win is the worst, most poorly executed splash I have seen in my life. This you, you're tall, doing injustice calling it a splash off the top rope. The, <laughs> Russ Francis is a tall man. The way I described him as he came out was he looked like a tall, athletic man in his underwear. And I know that is basically what pro wrestling is, but I don't know. Usually you still look like a wrestler. That is not how Russ Francis looked here. He looked very uncomfortable in everything he did, except for the forearms of the chest that I assume were the one thing they taught him how to do. But he he scales the ropes. He leaps off the top rope. And two-thirds of the way through this, I'm like, oh, this doesn't look that bad. Then he lands feet first. He lands on his feet. He lands on his feet and then kind of falls like a tree being chopped down in the forest onto the terrorist. Yes, he just falls onto the terrorist for a one, two, three. It was the lowest impact. <laughs> I don't even know how. Again, go back and watch the end of this show if you have this on VHS or DVD or on the network because that you will you will cackle. There, there. Someone needs to make a gif of that because it is it is something else. It yes, he lands on his feet, falls onto the terrace. One, two, three. Your winners, Snuka and Francis. The crowd is happy. And Francis gets to beat up the mercenary and the terrorist outside the ring after the match. 12 minutes. Finally, the show is over. We see an empty building. Ron Trongard is with Larry Zabisco. Sorry, Rod Trongard. I, you, you called him Ron Burgundy earlier, and now <laughs> that's where I'm getting the Ron Trongard. Uh, he's there with Larry Zabisco. Zabisco cuts a promo. It was great. The controversy is I had 50, 60 cents in my pocket. Doesn't matter. Bockwinkle got beat. Keeps calling him Rod. (laughs) It was great. Great promo by Larry. Rod is back with an interview with Snooka and Francis. Francis says if... So basically, we get a series of interviews where Rod's interviewing everyone, asking them about what they thought of the main event, what they thought of the championship match. Yes, not what they thought of the main event. That would be something entirely different and, and probably more entertaining. But yes, asking them about the the uh, Nick Bockwinkle, Kurt Hennig championship controversy. So Francis says if Hennig cheated, he doesn't deserve the title. And then Snuka says something incomprehensible. I don't know what he said. <laughs> As Snuka is wont to do. Ron interviews Blackwell. He says nothing. Ron interviews Bockwinkle and Stanley Blackburn. Nick Bockwinkle says he needs to wait for the championship committee. Stanley says, 
We'll look over the tape and make a decision over the next few days. Like I mentioned earlier, two full weeks <laughs> for them to make that decision. And uh, Ron recaps the heavyweight title match again, and the show is over. Mercifully. Oh, now, Bockwinkle's farewell was just a few months later, August 2nd, 1987, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, putting over Hennig in an AWA title match. And then he would go on to the WWF as an agent. And and that is that is pretty much it for this show. Yeah, that that pause was just uh, <laughs> I, I, that was basically sweet, sweet relief. The end of the show. It was to represent the long, boring stretches of the show <laughs> that we had to watch. Oh. Um, yeah, I, I best match. I don't think there's any there's there's even though the finish was so not what I think either of us were hoping for when the match started. I don't think there's any way you could say the best match isn't Nick Bockwinkel versus Kurt Hennig. That that's it's a it's a one match show. 100%. It's the only option. It's the only option. Uh, there's a lot of ways you can go here for for worst match. <laughs> I think yeah, I would be fine with saying there's no worst match on this show. It's worst show. Period. <laughs> we can just I, say this whole show burn the tape. I will. Sorry. Um, I will disagree with you. It, well, I will agree that yes, burn the tape by all, <laughs> by all measures, by all costs at all costs, but there were really boring matches on the show, like terribly horrifically boring matches. The opener, uh, the semi main event, the main event was terrible, particularly the, the splash from, <laughs> from Russ Francis, but I am going to go out on a limb and say that the, uh, the six man tag match, was the worst match on this show because again, I don't think I've ever been more angry, not by anything. You know, we talked about Booker T triple H like in match being offended by things, but I don't think I've ever been more angry by the structure of a professional wrestling match in my life than that six man tag and those heels and how boring they were uh, beating down Marty Jannetty and the constant teases that, that just kept going and going and going and going. So I'm going to go with that six man because it made oh, me very angry. I will disagree with you. I, I I can't let you call that the worst match. Now I it, I understand it was frustrating. It was not great, but it did have a fun Shawn Michaels flurry of action. We did have some good selling by Marty Jannetty. He was very good in the role, even though the structure was terrible. So I would have to say that on a show that also had. Jerry Blackwell and Boris Zukov. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that that match was significantly worse than uh, than the six man tag. I I yeah. hated, I, I hated. You're probably that right. Match. I hated that match. That match had a horrible finish as well, with with, with this terrible ref bump and everything. That that was just hideously boring. And we had to rewatch the same dudes from that boring opener yes. come back out. Could have just made this a tag match half the time. Would have been a lot better. Uh, yeah, that that's my vote. I, I'm going to have to say that that terrible Blackwell-Zukov match. Ugh. I'm going to kind of split the difference here and say I'm not changing my pick, but you're right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and with that, we are going to wrap it up. I do want to remind everyone that you can interact with the show on social media at Wrestle at Random on Twitter and Instagram. 
every Thursday we post on social media what event we'll be recapping that week. Facebook.com slash wrestling at random as well. And of course, uh, wrestling at random.com has all the links for you to interact with the show. Uh, you can send us an email, wrestling at random at gmail.com. And make sure that if you want to support the show, you subscribe, you rate, review. That helps others find this show. Tell your wrestling fan friends about us. Tell your previous wrestling fan friends, guys who used to watch wrestling and don't anymore. Tell them about it. They might be interested in taking this trip down memory lane with us. And also tell people who are actually your previous friends, people you don't like, you don't talk to anymore. Still tell them about the podcast if they used to watch wrestling or still watch it. We 100% depend on you to continue to spread the word if you like this show to uh to others that's the best way to support the show and uh we love to interact with the folks so please if you have those positive comments those five-star reviews leave them on your podcatcher of choice your negative reviews your criticisms save that for twitter and the email and uh we do want to uh we do like to interact with everyone so please make sure you uh uh, stay in contact with us. So subscribing is the best way to do it, to never miss an episode. Again, the entire back catalog of this podcast, these are evergreen shows. You go back, you can listen to them at any time. Episode one is just as fresh as the day it came out. Go back, hit the archives for some of these fun shows. Go listen to that AWA show that was significantly better than this AWA show. Yeah. Uh, all of well, those. You could, you could actually... I think we've done enough episodes now that let's say, you know, you, you just wanted to chug some Red Bulls and stay up for 24 <laughs> hours and do nothing but listen to wrestling at random. You could do that and probably still have a few hours of audio left uh, when you wake up three days later. Yeah, don't do that. But if you wanted to, you could, but don't. And uh, <laughs> you can you can access all of the archives for this show, wrestlingatrandom.com. And with that, we're going to wrap it up. Adam, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeremy. This was a soul-crushing experience to watch this show, but uh, a life-affirming experience doing this podcast about the show with you, Jeremy. So I appreciate it, and I hope that the randomizer uh, takes mercy on our souls uh, come next Thursday. Randomizer owes us one. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you again next time.